Now going to shift today's scripture reading, uh, and after that time, I will be back for today's teaching. Today's reading is from Philippians 1, verse 12 through 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But why does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, for which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, uh, was by all accounts uh, a ministry beast. He was zealous for preaching the gospel like few have been throughout history. Uh, as you read the New Testament, it's really easy to envision Paul just hitting these missional sprints. Uh, you can imagine him riding this wave of spiritual adrenaline as he travels from place to place, preaching and teaching and writing these passionate and didactic letters um, and interacting with those that were curious about Jesus along the way, planting churches, starting them from nothing. Uh, it was an amazing uh, ministry that he had. But what was interesting is he would hit these strides. And then, every so often, he'd end up in prison. Right? He'd be flying through ministry, just crushing it as an apostle, only to hit a wall and have to come to a complete stop. Uh, you may know what that feels like. Uh, I think one really great example of that, just in our everyday lives, if you've uh, ever been on a bus trying to get home and you hit this uh, stretch of all green lights, uh, my wife likes to call it uh, green light delight, where there are no cabs that are blocking the bus lane, there are, there's no one uh, waiting at these different bus stops and you just hit this really sweet flow. And sometimes you can go 10, 15 blocks uh, in just one straight shot. Those are, that's rare, but what an amazing feeling that is. It's almost like you're cheering the bus driver on as you're going. But then, inevitably, 
you hit the red light. Dead stop, all momentum is done. I mean, that was basically Paul's 35 years of ministry. It was go, 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 and then boom, stopped. Seemingly losing all momentum. And I wonder how we would respond if we were in Paul's place, in his situation. You know, how would we respond now in contemporary context? What happens when your trajectory for life is knocked off course? What happens when the uh, object on which you had built your entire identity begins to crumble? What happens when that which you've committed your life to is in some way undermined? Now, it'd be easy to understand uh, for Paul if those circumstances made him feel defeated. You know, if our passage, if our text read something like, I, Paul, uh, imprisoned yet again, hang my head and weep. Or if he had said something like, I was beaten yet again, and it feels like though I am working hard for God, but God is not working hard to care for me. I mean, who would blame us? Or who would blame him? Would, could we blame him if he had such a response? But instead, what is Paul's response to hitting this seemingly um, trajectory setting wall that upends everything that he was attempting to accomplish? What is his response to those circumstances? I mean, even though his career seemed over, and his life at this point, now that he's in prison, seems to be on the line, his response is not despair, it is not anger, it is not hopelessness, but rather, according to verse 18 in our passage, it's rejoicing. Now last week we started a series looking at the book of Philippians, uh, this series being called uh, Marked by Joy, and in this series we look at what it means to live a Christian life. Uh, last week we began looking at the concept of joy, and we noted uh, in particular that joy and happiness are not the same things. That while joy might result in feelings of happiness, we said that joy was ultimately defined by trusting God, meaning that we submit to his will and we remember um, that he is always present with us regardless of life's circumstances. Now what I hope that we can see today is what it means to trust God's purposes and more specifically to learn to identify God's purposes in our lives regardless of the circumstances. And what I hope that we can grasp today is really this, that we cannot always tell the ways that God is moving in the micro, meaning we don't know specifically what God is doing in all situations at all times. But what this passage and many other passages throughout the Bible do tell us is that we can know for sure what God is doing in the macro. There are going to be many seasons of life where we feel completely lost in understanding God's purposes in the micro in our lives, in the details. But though at times we will feel lost, we can still rejoice regardless of what comes because we know what God is doing in the macro. We know certain purposes that he is orchestrating in the world. And it's those things I want to look at with you today. I want to flesh out three macro truths that Paul uh, notes here that bring him joy even though he is suffering in prison. So you ready? Here are those three truths. Number one, 
we're going to see, we're going to look at God's sovereignty. Number two, we're going to look at God's deliverance. And then number three, we're going to look at God's glory. These are three macro things that we can always look to and cling to in all seasons. So first, God's sovereignty. We really should not uh, rush past Paul's understanding of his current life circumstances. Though he is in a very difficult and hard place, uh, he does not waver in his belief that God is in control, even though he himself is not. He does not know what will happen, and that seems to be okay with him. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says uh, that because he's in chains, his confidence in the Lord is increasing. Right? So his being in prison is not a reason for him to doubt God's sovereignty over all things or all situations, but rather it's a reason for him to be confident in God's sovereignty over all things. In verse 15 through 18, he expounds on something really interesting. He speaks to the various motivations as to why people preach Christ. Again, remember, preaching was Paul's forte. It's what he did. It was his calling in many ways. It's what defined who he was as a, as a, as a person. It could very well have been his meaning in life. And there he says that there are some, in this passage he says that there are some who preach out of self-gain. And then there are others who preach out of sincere love. But regardless of their motivation, God is sovereign as long as Christ is being preached. That's all that really matters. Now, for me, that resonates given, of course, that preaching is a big part of what I do. But if that idea that Paul is uh, articulating there doesn't, ident- or doesn't immediately resonate with you, um, consider and imagine your profession or your passion in life. And consider the fact that there are some that engage that same passion with right motivations, but then there are others who do it out of, their, uh, out of selfish motivation or for their own glory. And I wonder, if you were to see someone engaging in the thing that you are most passionate about for their own selfishness or their own glory, how might that make you feel? Well, for Paul, he says, eh, it's getting done. So it's not my problem. God will use it. He trusts God's sovereignty. And then in the next few verses, he pushes further into the idea that even his own death wouldn't bother him because of his utmost concern, or utmost uh, confidence rather, with God's sovereignty even over his life. He emphasizes this in particular in verses 23 through 26 where he says, listen, I'm torn. You know, I can see the benefits of dying and being with Christ. That would be wonderful. But I also, he says, see the benefits of God keeping me alive in order to continue my work here among you. Whichever he chooses, that works for me. Now, I'll be honest with you. That is like Ivy League PhD Christianity right there. This is not the stuff that we just jump into embracing right away. I mean, we spend years developing this kind of perspective. Right, swimming in the deep waters of trusting God's sovereignty is not something that you're going to master right away. It's just not. I mean, it takes years of trusting God, seeing his faithfulness to us in all seasons of life. Years of saying, I don't know what you're doing, God, but I trust you are in control. And the irony 
about uh, understanding the sovereignty of God is that the more we wade in the waters of truly trusting God's sovereignty, the more we realize how deep those waters truly are. Uh, what I mean by that is this, you know, for example, uh, if you have ever committed years of study to learning about a specific subject, when you begin to study that subject, there's usually this ambition, there's usually an ambition to master that subject, whatever it might be. But once you really start digging deep into that subject, you realize that the more you know, the more you actually don't know. I mean, the reason why I call the sovereignty of God PhD level Christianity is because in one sense, think about what a PhD is. A person with a PhD is viewed as an expert in a particular area. But PhDs by definition also spend their entire lives continuing to master the subject. They've are the same subject that they've already proven themselves to have mastered. Now, why? Well, it's because the depth of their chosen subject is endless. And to have an expert level understanding of something means you recognize how much you don't actually know and how much more there is to actually learn. I mean, this is what the sovereignty of God, it's like PhD level Christianity that takes a long time to master, but is also endlessly rich and deep, so much more to learn. And though this level of trust in God's sovereignty is deep and profound, it can be ours. I mean, in some sense, the Apostle Paul was special, sure. I mean, he was called by Jesus himself. He had quite the sinner-saint testimony. But in another sense, he's no greater than we are in his humanity. He is a fellow fallen brother in Christ who experienced fear and doubt and uncertainty and idolatry and temptation and betrayal and disappointment and trials, just like us. And yet, even though that's true, he remains trusting in the sovereignty of God. And saying, I realize, saying that we uh, need to trust that God is in control in all seasons, that it can sound really unrealistic, and it can even sound like a meaningless Christian platitude. You know, it can sound like something that you would see on the side of a mug or on a greeting card. You know, God is in control. But I hope that this passage shows us that there's actually so much to learn, so much depth, so much richness in that statement that God is in control. And we cannot rush too quickly by it. Because some of us, I know, we might be waiting in the kiddie pool of understanding God's sovereignty, but the Spirit of God is calling us to move slowly into ocean's depths worth of understanding of God's supreme power and authority over all things in all circumstances. He's calling you to that right now. But in his sovereignty, what exactly is it that God is doing? Uh, I started off by saying that though we cannot identify all the things that God is doing in the macro, we certainly can trust that he is doing certain things in his sovereignty in the, uh, in the macro as opposed to the micro. One of the things he might be doing is sending a siren uh, right by my apartment as I speak. Um, but one of the, the other things that we can discover that God is doing in the, maybe not the micro, but in the macro, is that we can see God's deliverance. Uh, look at verse 19. It says this, For I know that through your prayers 
in God's provision of the Holy of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that has uh, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Interesting statement Paul makes there. Now that verse is actually uh, translated a little strangely. When you read it, uh, it may seem as if Paul is saying that he's going to be delivered from prison. But that word deliverance in our passage uh, is actually the same Greek word that is translated salvation in many other passages throughout the New Testament. Uh, And the problem with the word deliverance in English is that it does give the impression that Paul is saying he's going to be delivered out of the prison. However, Paul can't be stating definitively that he is going to be released from prison since in the very next verse he says he may live or may die in prison. So what then is Paul saying? What he's saying is this. He's saying, because you are praying for me, and because the Spirit of God is always working, this imprisonment in some way is part of my salvation. It is part of God making me who he wants me to be. It is part of what God desires to accomplish in me. Uh, One commentator, when speaking of verse 9, puts it this way, that this present imprisonment with all its attending woes, will result in Paul's truest welfare, his highest good, namely, Christ magnified more than ever in Paul's person. Now, we should not uh, presume to understand how all of that really works, but in some way, Paul is being forged in in the fires of turmoil, and that fire is somehow, in some way, how God is choosing to work Paul's salvation. Now, I will grant that there's far more to say about this than I have time to, but the natural question, of course, should be, what then is Paul saying about his salvation? Does that mean that Paul is not really saved as he's writing this? Is he saying that his salvation is not actually in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, but rather that it's in his suffering? Well, no, that's not at all actually what is being said, but those are the right kinds of questions. But what is he saying then? If that's not what he's saying, what is he saying? Well, here's what he's saying. We need to consider the ways that Paul speaks of salvation as he writes in various places throughout the New Testament. Paul, in essence, speaks of salvation in three tenses, meaning that for the Christian, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will one day be saved. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. So in passages like uh, uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says this. He says, he has saved us, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose, and grace. So in one sense, if you are a Christian, God has saved you. There is nothing more that needs to be accomplished. Christ has said it is finished. It's done. You've been saved. But then there's other passages like in Romans 5 that tell us that we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Now this salvation that is to come, that Paul speaks of there, is a salvation That's to come when Christ returns. And when Christ returns, he will save us finally and fully from a world and a body that are marred by the effects of sin and the coming wrath of God. 
So in that sense, we will one day be saved. But then you have passages like ours here, or other passages like uh, in Philippians 2, which we'll get to later on in the series, where Paul says things like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Or passages like 1 Corinthians 1.18 that says, uh, says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that though we have been saved, and though we will one day be saved when Christ returns, we are also being saved every day. Which, which is what the Bible calls sanctification. Ongoing sanctification is part of God's saving grace, as it is the ongoing work of the Spirit that causes growth in us, growth in holiness and righteousness and love and compassion, all while strengthening the Christian in perseverance of faith. I mean, each day that we are trusting God's sovereignty and trusting His Spirit in us, He is saving us from things that might otherwise be our destruction. I mean, every day God is protecting and leading and guiding and disciplining those whom He loves. And in that He who started a good work might be faithful to complete it, a verse that we looked at last week. I mean, every day we are being saved in the sense that every day we are being made more to look like Jesus as we trust in him. Every day, but especially in difficult seasons, as James 1 says, the testing of our faith is producing perseverance. And that perseverance is God finishing his work in us, his work of salvation, the growth that is happening within us. And so for the Christian, no season is ever wasted. No trying time is ever arbitrary. No momentary affliction is meaningless. But rather, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, our momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. And in this way, it is part of God's ongoing commitment to bring us to experiencing that glory. That is a macro thing that God is doing all the time, in all seasons, regardless of what's happening. He's leading us to that end. But finally, what then does that mean? What, is, what exactly is that eternal weight of glory on the other side of affliction? Well, let's just quickly consider what we've said so far. Paul, Paul's rejoicing is rooted in the macro truth that God is sovereign in all circumstances, that God's salvation is always at work in him. God is always present by his spirit working in Paul. And now as a result of those two truths, the third thing is that God's glory will always be on display. And God's glory in our lives is what produces endless joy. Let's consider God's glory. Uh, look at how Paul understands his circumstances and God's glory. Uh, verse 12, he says that his imprisonment actually served to advance the gospel. In verse 18, he says that he rejoices because Christ is proclaimed. In verse 20, he says that Christ will be honored regardless of whether or not he lives or dies. In verse 26, 
he seeks to remain alive for no other reason except that Christ, there might be uh, ample opportunity for Christ to receive glory in his life. In other words, for Paul, his chief end in life is simply the glory of Christ in his life and in the lives of others, no matter the circumstances. God's glory was to be accomplished as a result, and because of this, he could rejoice. Now, God's glory in Christ, on display in our lives, please hear this, satisfies the soul in ways that nothing else ever will. Why is that the case? Well, it's because the glory of God in us is actually the core of what it means to be his creation. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which has historically been one of the ways that the doctrine of the church has been taught in our church tradition, uh, the catechism is essentially a series of questions and answers. And the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is simply the question, what is the chief end of man? Now, for all you good Presbyterians, uh, what's the answer? Well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That our great purpose in life and as a creation of God is singularly to bring glory to God. I mean, this is what Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Because it's that glory of God that is what makes us who we are, to be fully who we are, is to reveal and to show and reflect the glory of God. In all that we do, when God is seen as mighty and powerful and loving and gracious, it fulfills who we are. It is our destiny. I mean, even Jesus himself sought the glory of God in all that he did. I mean, just before Jesus goes to the cross in John 17, do you remember the prayer he prays? Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. But why? He says, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. I mean, Father, I am about to go to the cross. I am about to die and one, uh, after three days, your spirit is going to raise me up. And in the glory that is to come, may you be ultimately glorified, Father. I mean, Jesus accomplishes a great work that God's immeasurable glory might be known and seen by all. And do you know what that work was? Well, that, that is the work of salvation. It is the work that Jesus accomplishes. It is the salvation that has happened. It is the salvation that is continuing to happen. It is the salvation that is to come. It is the restoration of all creation. This is the work of Jesus. It brings glory to God. And my friends, here's the point. When we remember that God in his sovereignty has called you to himself, when we remember that he saved you through the work of our Savior Jesus, When we remember his glory in our lives, that glory will satisfy us most deeply, more than anything else could. When we can say that though I do not understand all that is happening in my life, God, would you still be glorified? For if the Father can be glorified in the death of his Son, he most certainly can be glorified in us in all circumstances. And when he is most glorified in us we will find satisfaction beyond all measure and that satisfaction will produce rejoicing. 
regardless of what is to come. And so my prayer for myself, my prayer for you, is that we would trust the sovereignty of God. He is in control of all things. That we would trust the salvation, the deliverance of God, the salvation that has happened, that is continuing to happen, and that will come to full, uh, complete, um, full completion one day when Christ returns. We can trust these things. God is glorified in us. And that glory of God the thing that we were designed and created to reflect and to exhibit will produce for us rejoicing. Rejoicing that can come from nowhere else. That is my prayer, that we would experience that together as his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that is in control of all things. We thank you that because you are in control of all things, you are also a God who is able to accomplish our salvation. And so we thank you for the work of your Son and the continuing work of your Spirit in us. And we also thank you uh, that we were created and designed to reflect your glory, to live lives that glorify you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that to be the case, that we would embrace it as truth, and that we would trust that your Spirit is uh, working in us in that way. For when we truly embrace lives that uh, seek to glorify you, we will be fulfilled and satisfied in ways uh, that are um, incomprehensible anywhere else. And as a result, that will produce joy. Would you make it so in our lives, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.